0: Well, I can't wait to open up God's Word to you today, and uh, kids, you're going to have a great time out there. You're going to miss a great sermon, but there it is, and uh, it's good to have you. I'm glad that you are with us, those of you who are part of Orangewood, and those of you who are visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. And, and, and you know, it, it, it's interesting, when you talk to a pastor, everybody knows what he's going to talk about on Easter Sunday, right? There's no. What are you going to talk about Sunday the resurrection, of course, and that's what we're going to talk about. Let me start out with a story that comes from David Jeremiah's book, Captured by Grace. It starts out this way. It's the autumn in New York, November 2004. Freezing rain, weary drivers, one carload of delinquents on a joyride. Got the picture? Their spree begins at the local Cineplex. Bored with action flicks, the teenagers decide to act out one. They break into a car, grab a credit card, and proceed to a video store. There, they charge $400 worth of DVDs and video games. Why not pick up a few groceries while they're at it? A surveillance tape catches the kids selecting a 20-pound turkey. (laughs) Remember the turkey. Pedal to the metal in a silver Nissan, the kids move along. And an irregular line intersecting with a hyundai containing one victoria ruvalo the two cars cross paths at approximately 12 30 a.m victoria ruvalo 44 is heading for her long island home having attended her 14 year old niece's vocal recital she looks forward to home and hearth particularly hearth she's ready to uh, unravel the overcoat and scarves burrow under an electric blanket and rest her weary self. Maybe the other silver Nissan approaching from the east catches Victoria's eye. Maybe not. Later, she won't be sure. She certainly won't recall the image of a teenage boy leaning out the window of a Nissan as the car approaches, nor will she retain any memory of a bulky projectile taking flight from his hands. This is the part about the turkey. The 20-pound bird crashes through Victoria's windshield. It bends the steering wheel inward, smashes into her face, and breaks every bone it encounters. Victoria will remember none of this, frankly, a stroke of mercy. Eight hours of surgery and three weeks of recovery later, friends and family fill in the blanks. Victoria lies impassively in a bed. Her emotions are difficult to discern given the mask her face has become. Shattered like pottery now stapled together by titanium plates or an eye affixed by synthetic film a wired jaw a tracheotomy the public reaction is much more vigorous the media has run with this story web blogs follow uh, every detail of arrest and arraignment over Thanksgiving New Yorkers whisper prayers of gratitude that they are not Victoria Ruvolo Over Christmas, they cherish their health, their fortunes, a little bit more than usual. Over the new year, they cry for justice. Internet bloggers and TV pundits suggest uh, what they do if if they would be in a room for five minutes with those punks in the Nissan. They'd especially love to lay their hands on Ryan Cushing, the 18-year-old who heaved the turkey. His face should be shattered. His life should lie in ruins. That's how the man in the street sees it. But it's all in the hands of the justice system. On Monday, August 15, 2005, Ryan and Victoria meet face-to-face, face-to-reconstructed face, face face in the courtroom. Nine agonizing, titanium-bolted months have passed since the attack. Victoria manages to walk into the courtroom unaided, a victory in itself. A trembling Ryan Cushing pleads guilty to a lesser Charge. Sentence, a trifling six months behind bars, five years probation, a bit of counseling, a dash of public service. People shake their heads in righteous indignation. Is that all the punishment we can dish out? When did this country become so soft on crime? Let's lock up all the criminals and throw away the key. Who's responsible for this plea bargain anyway? The victim. That's who. Who? The victim requests leniency. Ryan makes his plea and then turns to Victoria Ruvolo, all the essence of tough guy long since drained away. He's weeping with abandon. The attorney leads the assailant to the victim. Victoria holds him tight, comforts him, strokes his hair, and offers reassuring words. I forgive you. She whispers, I want your life to be the best it can be. Tears mingle from mask of reconstruction and mask of remorse. It takes quite an event to bring tears to the eyes of New York attorneys and magistrates. This is such an event. TV and radio reporters file their stories in voices that, for once, are hushed and respectful. The New York Times dubs it, a moment of grace. How does a story like that happen? How does such grace and forgiveness take place? You and I wouldn't even believe the story if it wasn't so well documented. It comes from somewhere. The grace comes from somewhere. The love comes from somewhere. A ruined life comes that is able to embrace the one who ruined her life. That power comes from somewhere. And that story is well documented. It's true, as is the story of the life of Christ, so well documented in the scriptures. That if one hadn't had it well documented, one wouldn't even believe it was true. But we have it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very well documented. On Monday, Thursday, it was documented on our outline by one of the young girls in our church who was following every one of us who spoke and writing out the story, not the whole story of Christ's life, but how do you get this reality of God in the eternal councils of the triune God, God, the son taking on human flesh and coming to walk among us, taking on our flesh and then living a perfect life for us, enduring the ridicule And abuse of those in power and finding a following and then riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And and then the next week having the Lord's Supper. It's documented here on this if you want to see it. This will be worth something someday. I'm keeping it. The Lord's Supper. The prayer of Christ in Gethsemane. Father, if any way you can take this from me, take it. Jesus on the cross, three days in the tomb, the resurrection, the ascension to heaven. And yet one day he's coming again. Who could make up a story like that? Who would make up a story like that? And if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it it wouldn't be true. The life of Christ would be just another life. It would be just another biography. But here we are today on Easter celebrating and singing, and we have to read the resurrection account because if it weren't so well documented, it'd be beyond belief. It would be beyond belief. John 20, verses 1 through 20. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John the author, and and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them he'd said these things to her on the evening. Of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed and they saw the Lord. This is God's holy word to us. What a powerful text. What a powerful text. What a powerful historical account. Doesn't this read like history? Yeah, it reads like history because it is written as history. It reads as history because it is written as history, not as fictional fact. It's, and by the way, I've read a lot of history and some of you have too. How many of you like history? How many of you like novels more? Yeah, you, you lie about other things, you know, <laughs> some of you like history, some of you don't, but this reads like history. I've read it all. I like history. I like novels. I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I've read Clive Cussler. I like novels too, you know. But I know the difference. This morning I got up early and I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the resurrection. And all of them, it's confirmed in my mind, they all sound like history. Why? Because they are, in fact, historical accounts. And what we find in our culture today in America is that that there are varying responses. Some believe, others, others like to deride Christianity, like Sam Harris and some of the other atheists. Sam Harris wrote this. He's one of the modern atheists. He said, uh, some perspectives are so dangerous that it may, may be ethical for killing people who believe them. He was, he was thinking of you and me. And then there are others who just want to destroy us and wipe us out, like the 183 Christians that were killed in Sri Lanka overnight and today. But, but, but do but, us or try to destroy us? Look at this place. The gospel is true. The resurrection account is true. This is the most investigated event in all of human history. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, said that so many people who oppose Christianity have illogical thinking, shallowness on an epic scale. It's amazing because they say, well, premise number one, miracles don't happen. Premise number two, the resurrection is a miracle, a conclusion the resurrection didn't happen. What? That's about the most shallow thinking I've ever read that I've ever heard. And yet it's, it's out there all day. They're taking an unproven uh, assumption. Miracles don't happen and coming to a faulty conclusion. That's always happens, doesn't it? You start out bad, you end up bad. And, and 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 yet the resurrection account proves the reality of what we're talking about here today. And so Easter is one of those days where Christians have to do some history. And then they have to ask the question, so what? So we're going to do that just for a couple of minutes. And I'll let you out of here. Some of you got things to do today, family activities. Some of you have two or three family activities. Some of you already did the Easter egg hunt. Some of you are going to an Easter egg hunt. We got a lot to do today. But this is the most important. So let's do some history and then ask the question, so what? And so the reality is, by the way, Christians are, as we talk about history, the resurrection in history, Christians are some of the most serious people you've ever met. Christians are some of the most, some of the deepest thinkers you've ever met. And it's been that way since the first century because they had to be convinced first that it was true before they would sacrifice their lives for Christ and live for him. And in fact, we see that's what what happened. So the resurrection of history helps us to understand the reality that things happen. As we unpack the account, we see that Mary Magdalene and the other women, all the accounts tell this, the ladies got there first. Women, you think you've been demeaned by other people? The gospel always elevates you. In the New Testament, it was the ladies who were there first, the ladies that get the credit, and The ladies that, that went to the tomb first, and they saw it first. And then Peter and John, they had a foot race to the tomb, by the way. You can pick that up. Mark, you couldn't have been in on that race that time. But, uh, but, but they had a foot race. Peter was a little bit older. John younger. John got there first. And, and John kind of stuck his head in, looked in, and, and, and Peter went, ran on by. And there in the tomb, what they saw was cloth. That's it. No body wrapped in a cloth, leaking blood or bodily fluids. What they didn't see was important. They didn't see a body and they were shocked. But what they did see, and I'll talk about this later, they saw a cloth that had been the head covering, the napkin covering Jesus' face and head. That was folded up neatly. I'll get back to that toward the end. But here we see that that the amazing thing was that the disciples didn't know where the body had been taken. The Jewish authorities didn't know where the body had been taken. The Romans didn't know where the body had been taken. Nobody knew what happened to Jesus and then they saw him alive. Mary saw him, and Mary probably immediately fell down at his feet, grabbed him, and was cutting off the circulation. And that's why Jesus had to say something like, Mary, don't hold on so tight. I haven't ascended yet. There's stuff to do. Go tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee, and we'll talk there. English scholar New N.T. Wright said that that one of the issues going on here is the understanding that if you have an empty tomb and no sightings, you have a problem. And if you have sightings of a resurrected Lord, but no empty tomb, you have a problem, right? Here we have an empty tomb and sightings of a resurrected Lord. And that was what was doing it for the disciples. That was what was proving to them As Paul said, this is the number one aspect of Christianity. Don't give me that Christianity is about moralism. It isn't. If the resurrection isn't true, none of it's true. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For I receive what I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Then he appeared to Peter, and he goes on and on. But a first of first importance is the resurrection of Christ. That's why Easter is really the beginning of the Christian year. It's not Christmas. It's Easter. This is what entered, listen, catch this. The Greeks were not, uh, would never have postulated a resurrection because the Greeks believed, all Greek philosophy taught, that, that living in a human body was a bad thing. And some of you who worked too hard yesterday doing some weekend warrior stuff are feeling the aches and pains today, and your body's hurting, right? Okay, so uh, you know that the, and some of us who are a little older. We know the body has its limitations. The Greeks said the body's bad, and the goal is to get outside the body. And the Romans, well, the Romans followed the Greeks because the Romans weren't the deep thinkers the Greeks were. Romans were builders, but they just followed Greek thinking. So none of the Greeks thought that a resurrection would happen. The Romans never thought a resurrection would happen. And catch this, the Jews never thought a resurrection would happen. And you know why? Because they didn't believe that there would be a resurrection until the very end of the age. Then a resurrection would take place. But then if you all of a sudden have people saying that Jesus is resurrected and they were worshiping him, a Jew would never have done that. They never worship a human being. That's what the church was doing, though. They said he's alive from the dead; he is God in the flesh, and they worship. So the reality is is it's important for us to understand historically, guys, that nobody, nobody, the Jews, the Greeks, the Christians would never have come up with this idea of resurrection. It was a reality that inserted itself into reality. And the Christians were the first ones that had to be convinced. And they were. And they were, and it made all the difference in the world. So resurrection is history that forces us to, to move into the reality of resurrection as, as a life-changing moment. I want to talk about that a little bit for for the rest of our time together, because resurrection as a life starting point is absolutely crucial for us. Facts are stubborn things. And Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. And for those of us who are Christians, we need to remember that that the resurrection is our, catch this, our intellectual starting point in life. Notice I didn't say emotional starting point in life. The resurrection is our intellectual starting point in life because Christianity is rigorously rooted in history, in space, and time, and fact. It's our intellectual starting point. Facts are stubborn things. And truth always leads to trust. And so, yes, the early church uh, confirms this. The empty tomb confirms it. But truth leads us to trust him. And so as we follow Jesus, if we accepted, we've not only accepted one who took our sins in his body but rose and triumphed over death. Therefore, we will triumph over death too in the future. And so the reality is, is that that truth leads to trust. Truth also precedes emotion. Were you guys a little emotional today? I was. I almost became a charismatic sitting over here as we were singing that song. It was incredible. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. The reality is Christians are emotional. But when we're at our best, we're not emotional first. When we're at our best, it is the intellectual truth of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that then enables us to experience joy. I, I, some of you play golf. I gave it up years ago. Nobody is as bad a golfer as me, but I got my Sports Illustrated. On the front cover is Tiger. How many of you saw that game where he finally won at first... Um, First Masters after 14 years, uh, first major win after 11 years, four back surgeries. There it is. There's a picture of him. I saw that. I, I think I turned on the game, like I mean, the, the match right then. There he is. Now, if you were at, say, T6, 6T, if you had all of a sudden started cheering, yeah, Tiger won, Tiger won, yeah, and we're getting all emotional, excited, what would people have thought about you? You were crazy. And so, and so the reality is, is that for Christians, we have emotion and deep emotion, but it comes from the realities of truth. And so, and so the resurrection is our intellectual starting point, and we have to be there. We have to be rooted in that because that's what enables us to, to, to move through every day of, of our life and, and not be based on emotion or controlled by emotion, especially when things get really bad. For me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how I make it through a world filled with chaos. I don't know about you, but this world is filled with chaos. Uh, When they do new roads here in Orlando, they don't ask me if it's okay to go ahead and tear up that particular road. Nobody asked my opinion. It deeply offends me. This past week, a friend of mine called me, a good friend of mine, high level in his company, uh, called me and said, hey, my boss is flying into town from uh, California. I said, how long have you known about this? Oh, not long at all. I said, now that doesn't sound good. He said, nah, no big deal. It wasn't good. And he's going to be looking for new work, but he texted me this this morning. The silence of Saturday has been shattered by the shouts of Sunday. He has risen. He has risen. Indeed, everything is changed by the resurrection. That's how a businessman can make it when his life shatters. That's how Victoria Ruvalo can make it when her face is shattered. That's how we can make it when our life doesn't turn out the way we think it will. Because truth is truth. And it affects and helps to control our emotion. Helps to keep us from falling apart when life does. Resurrection then, it's important for us to understand, becomes the intellectual starting point that affects everything in our life. Resurrection though, can also become the starting over point for somebody who has never ever accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. You may have been drugged here today by well-meaning Christian friends. God bless you for being here. I hope they take you to lunch at least for coming. We're glad you're here. Um, you know, and, and, and yet it's possible on Easter that you're here in church because you wonder, what are you Christians all excited about? What is this? I came because my friend invited me. But life is constructed, isn't it, in such a way that we, that at one point we wake up and we come to the end of ourselves. We say, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I don't have it as together as I thought I did. I'm really much more of a mess. By the way, every Christian has come from that perspective, myself included. We finally get to the point where we realize we can't deal with our sin. We can't deal with our guilt and shame. We can't undo anything. We can't, get, we can't be good enough long enough to get God to forgive us. We just can't. And that's why Jesus came. And the really bad news is that we're all fallen sinners But the really good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life and then took our place on the cross, suffering for us for what we could not do ourselves. And the resurrection, you see, is proof that the Father accepted his sacrifice for us. And that's what I love, Romans 4.25. It says this, he was delivered up to the cross for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. You see, Jesus came out of the tomb because the father said, I accept your sacrifice. Isn't that great? And, and so, and so for, for you today, the resurrection can become a starting over point where you say, my life wasn't going where I thought it should go and I can't get there. I need help. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, if I said that to you, you'd go, whoa, delusion. But Jesus walked out of a tomb, and he said it. And he could be trusted with your guilt and your shame and all of the mess. No longer, if you follow him, will your identity be based on performance or by what people said about you years ago or by your failing. That's not your identity. And Christ, if you accept Christ, your identity is now as a deeply beloved and redeemed son or daughter of the most high God. You're forgiven. And you're brought into this family. And we're not perfect, but we invite you here. People who have understood God's incredible grace And some of you may be at a starting over time in your life today. It's great. It's a great place to be. Great place to be. So the resurrection is really the intellectual starting point for all of us as Christians. The the resurrection is also a starting over point for those who are not Christians. But, But for all of us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a powerful motivation every day of our life. Can be. Should be. Will be because of the resurrection. I can get up in the morning. I have a purpose. I have a reason. I know that I, I know that I'm not, I didn't hang the moon. I'm not a big CEO accomplishing great things. But you know what? I have a reason to get up. And you do too. In Christ, we we are given this new identity, and God says, I love you. And I want to work through you to make a difference in the world. You matter. Your identity has been raised and you have been given a role of, you can do something. God can do something through you that nobody else can do. That's motivation to get up every, every day. It's not same old, same old, same old. As we get up, we talk to the resurrected Lord and he says, got some plans for you today. Let's go. You matter. Let's go. And this life, you know, you don't just, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? You know, the right answer to that question is, he who dies with the most toys, what? Still dies. Same stuff, different day. No. But given hope. Because this world, this life is going somewhere. There's a bigger narrative, a bigger story going on. Because Jesus has come once in fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament. But, he, but he's coming again. The napkin, the napkin, the napkin. You see, when they went into the tomb, they found his burial clothes laid there. And I suspect piles, some, some spices... Uh, initial uh, initial spices that had been put in the folds of his clothing. Um, but they found the napkin curiously folded up. A whole verse in John is dedicated to the fact that the napkin, the burial cloth around Jesus' head was folded up deliberately. There's, there, there's a historical precedent for that. And here's what it was. In the first century, the master of the house dictated how the tables would be set. Now, he might have delegated that to his wife, But back then, if you were the master of the house, uh, you got to determine how your table was to be set. And so the servant, if you had one, the servant would set the table in exactly the way he wanted it to be set. The master wanted it to be set. And the servant wouldn't eat while the master was eating. He'd stand nearby and watch. Now, if the master got up from the table and and took the the wiped his mouth, wiped his hands, and threw it on the table and walked away, it was a symbol, he was done. It's over. And so the servant could move in and start cleaning up the mess, right? But if the master got up and folded the napkin and walked away from the table, it was a symbol that he wasn't done eating and that he was coming back. So the servant would just wait, just wait. And then the master would come back. Isn't it fascinating that in the tomb, it wasn't just thrown there. It was folded there. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you stay here in Jerusalem until you are filled with power. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. And I'm coming back. Lo, I'm with you always, Jesus said. Even to the end of the age. Why are we here? Because we have hope. That comes from an empty tomb and an all sufficient Savior who completely satisfied the Father's just wrath at our sin. And so He looks at us and He works in us and He's coming back before we know it. Andre Godin said this the quality of our expectation determines the quality of our action. The quality of our expectation determines the quality of our action. And so as we go out of here today, as people absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we go out of here living a life shaped by him, empowered by him, focused upon him. Why? Because we've got all the answers? No, but because he does. And we go out in hope knowing that he is coming back again. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You take it to heart. Let's pray together. You know, it's possible this morning you're here and... And you are at a start over point in your life. And we want to give you the opportunity to start over. This is a great day to do it. If you have come to the end of yourself and you, for some reason, are ready to follow someone other than yourself and ready to follow Jesus Christ, we invite you to pray in your heart something, something like this. God, being omnipotent, can even hear the silent prayers of every human being at the same time. But you could pray something like this. God, I, God I have, I've tried to do life on my own for years, and it just hadn't worked. And I have succeeded or I have failed, but I still, I still need more. I need forgiveness. I need hope. I need you to deal with my shame. I need a savior. And so Jesus today, I embrace you. Come into my life. I I don't know, know what all that means, but come into my life. Forgive me. Be my savior. Be my leader. And I will seek to follow you. The Bible says, whoever receives him, to them he gave the right to become a a child of God. And if you prayed a prayer like that, tell one of us. And we want to encourage you as you start your journey. Now, if you are one of God's people, and it's been rough, and you need hope, then then today you could pray something like this. Lord, take the truth of the resurrection and sink it deeply into my heart. Make it real to me again that I'd experience the joy of my salvation in Christ. Father, thank you that we can come to you now on this day. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to you and we can pray that we can come to you in all of our weakness and find that you, the resurrected Lord, have done great things and are still doing great things. Continue to invest your resurrection power in our lives. And we give you praise and honor and glory as we pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.